Welcome to Black Diplomats, a foreign policy podcast about safety and security. I'm your host, Terrell Starr. This week, we're breaking down all things Alexei Navalny as well as race in Russia. And we have a great panel of experts to break this complicated subject down. We have Rano Turayeva, Associate Researcher at the Max Planck Institute for Social Anthropology at Halle Salle, Germany, where she works on labor and migration issues of Central Asians to Russia. We also have Irina Kuznetsova, a lecturer at the School of Geography, Earth, and Environmental Sciences at the University of Birmingham, where she studies the social consequences of population displacement in Ukraine, Russia, Rwanda, Nigeria, and Japan including mental health and well-being and the impact of migration on rural communities. And finally, we have Kimberly St. Julian Varnon. She's a PhD student at the University of Pennsylvania, where she's studying blackness in the USSR. She is also a book review editor for H Ukraine and a host of the new book, Russian and Eurasian Studies podcast. Welcome to the show, y'all. Thank you very much. Thank you. I always like to start my podcasts off by asking folks how they're doing because, you know, we all are devoted to all this serious stuff where we're dealing with migration and, and race and there are, you know, it, it, it's just the work by its very nature is very serious and we often don't check in with each other. So uh, Irina, with, without talking about work, without talking about any of the things that you focus on, how are you doing and how are you managing to navigate yourself through all the challenges that we're facing in the world? Thank you so much, Terrell, uh, for asking. Uh, uh, it's, it's a nice question and it's a Friday evening uh, here in Birmingham. Uh, but today was a very, very special day because uh, it's the last day, hopefully, of uh, homeschooling because our schools will be reopened on Monday. <laughs> but I have very mixed feelings about it because uh, for, for some extent I did enjoy it. You know, I have six years old and 17 years old. And so obviously with the older one, we don't need to do homework, but with the six years old, we did. But today, on my shift, so we divide our homeschooling equally with my husband. So on my shift, I decided not to do any schoolwork. And instead, we just went to our garden and I was painting a fence and she was just painted some sticks or stones. <laughs> and it was fun. So, and I really hope that um, this pandemic eventually will finish. Yes, and things will go back to normal, but still I think that we did uh, have Good moments is our family. Yeah, you know, I the the goal for the pandemic to end is that people have to act right. So they have to follow all the rules and people need to, you know, follow the guidelines and the vaccinations and all this other stuff. And um, you know, England is one of those places where it's kind of, you know, I don't know how similar it is to the United States, but you know, you all have your own issues in regards to that over there. So, no, I, I definitely feel you. So, um, Kimberly, how about yourself? You're, you're, you're in Texas. 
<laughs> yes. In terms of people acting right, I am in the hot spot of people not acting right. Oh, not only does you do you have government that they, they take away your mask. I saw a tweet where it said, you know, um, coming soon, the place of no masks, where basically the place that that office that says you can't wear you don't have to wear a mask, but they also don't give you electricity and running water. <laughs> That that is true, but what two weeks ago now, you know, we got hit by that ice storm and I didn't have electricity for twenty hours, I didn't have running water for three days, and then we had like the grocery shortage, so there's no food for a little while. Um luckily all that has been fixed. Um but yeah, being in Texas right now is and I'm born and raised from Texas, but yeah, it's a hot mess and I just stay in my house and like I'll walk around the neighborhood with my dogs, but I that's that's how I keep safe is just staying in the house, but not outside of work. Like I've started um, knitting. So that's something I do now is I knit <laughs> being my best babushka. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think that we could, the two of us, especially because we're Americans, you know, and you know, like we're, because the Soviet, like this Russia, East European space, whether it be, you know, like this whole conversation about babushka culture, like, we could all have a con. We could just do a podcast based on that, but just like how Americans just experience babushka culture, and you know, like there's just a there's a whole. It much has been talked. It's been written about in Russian as well, in you know, language. But I think that babushka culture would fascinate Americans. You know? Oh yeah, it's especially like this whole idea now that millennials were apparently old. So I, I just embrace my inner babushka. I drink my tea. I knit. I don't like cold drafts. So it's amazing, like, how the pandemic has changed me. <laughs> but we should celebrate it. How old do you have to be to be babushka? See, I don't know. I mean, mentally, I've always been around age 70, like, even when I was a little kid. So I kind of feel like I've always been here. But I think, like, when I taught high school, I was considered old because I was, like, 28. So according to Gen Z... We're, we're all babushkas now. But I feel like at least in like Russian culture, like babushka is grandmother, right? So once you become a grandmother, then you're like that babushka, that caring, you know, matriarch of the family. So it just depends, I guess, on where you are and what age you are and what your role is in the family. You know, I feel like, you know, but also like I spend much of my time in Ukraine, right? You know, now in Georgia, like the word for babushka is bebia, you know? Like in 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 Gruzinski Yazik, right? So it's it's babia, but like it it just it feels like it's the same kind of thing. Cause I was just in Uzbekistan like a month ago, and even though the culture is different, babushka culture is very much the same. Like you just think about that that old mother, that old woman that's like at the bench. Like there's got to be a bench, <laughs> and there's got to be you like it's got to be like three or four of them, and they're just talking all types of stuff and gossiping <laughs> about people coming through. And I just, you know, it's also, it's really funny too, just like as a black American coming through, like, especially when you go to the regions and you're like, if you rent a, uh, an apartment for a month or so, they're like the local spies and they're just like feeling you out. And then particularly if you're unusual, they don't know you. It's like, they first, they don't think you understand, right? Because it's like, hmm, like, who is he? And then you turn around and you speak to them and they're like, oh, okay. You know, and then they speak to you. And so I found that for my own security, it was best to know and really have good relationships with babushkas. 
you know, because they know everything. Yeah, they're they're the spies of the neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> Kimberly, you're knitting yourself through this, huh? I'm knitting. You can either knit or like eat. So I feel like knitting is the healthier choice. So I'm just knitting. So Rano, uh, tell us about um uh, how you're maintaining. Today, uh just two hours ago the conference ended. Uh it was a two days long conference. I had my panel today. So a little bit had a long day today. I was presenting on uh, depth relations and this Dalgavaya uh, Citrat and these uh, shops which uh, trade on uh, depth, depth-based trade. So it was a long day for me and the kids are at homeschooling still. So I really am jealous about Irina's children. They're going to school and mine are at home. So they were running. Uh, so I just locked the door. I said it doesn't go on podcast uh, during the conference. They were just running to pick up the whatever laptops are in the office, so so that they don't use it for for anything, only for school. Um, yeah, but mm-hmm. I'm fine. <laughs> Trying to come along with pandemic. Oh. Um, I think I'm uh, one of the, I'm, I'm located in one of the most conservative place, I guess, among you. So it's very strict. Uh, everything is still under lockdown. Here I'm in a thief Bavarian village near 30 minutes from Munich uh, because I'm doing at the university in Munich my uh, habilitation. Good, good, good. So, I, yeah, so I think it's important that we always check in with each other. So I am doing yoga. I'm running. I have traveled, you know, as under as much quarantine precautions as possible. I went to Ukraine. I just arrived from Ukraine a week ago and I was in the Carpathian Mountains. I have a, a cabin out there that I rent and where I'm basically by myself. I live in a little studio here. And if I were staying here the whole time, I would go crazy. So, wow. so I, yeah, I mean, I really would. So I just, I went to this little, this, this large kind of, uh, it's not a dacha. It's like a, it's more like a cabin. And I go there every three months and the basics are, as long as you take a negative COVID test there, then you come back here, you get another COVID test, you're fine. But I've also been following all the precautions as best I can. I've just pretty much stayed inside, but in a larger place in Ukraine. And there are mountains all around, so you can go hike. And the thing is that you don't, there's nobody around because you're literally out in the countryside. So it's not like some large city where you're likely be to be, you know, caught up with folks. So that's what I've done. But, you know, I definitely appreciate the people who stay inside because obvious reasons. So let's get into some of the news of the day. We're going to be talking about race, but I want to start off with something that's been on the news lately, which has been Alexei Navalny in his current um, situation where he is in prison. And so he he came to uh, internet in the international spotlight um, for one because of his arrests. But you know, Amnesty International they designated him as a prisoner of conscience, and then they revoked it after they discovered his racist statements. I always found that to be peculiar because if you do a basic Google search, you can find plenty of material in Russian and in English about all the crazy things that he has said and his lack of uh, and his in, in his inability to say that 
I'm sorry. And for those of uh, you who are listening to us, some of the things that he has said is um, basically comparing um, people from the Caucasus and uh, Central Asia, you know, to cockroaches. And in one video, for example, he is basically recommending a full sanitation. You know, he literally used these words um, as he was dressed in a dentist in a in a dentist outfit, you know, and there are footage and there's footage of migrants in Moscow um, that's interspersing his statements, and he says, "Yeah, I, I recommend full sanitation. Everything in our way should be careful, carefully, but decisively removed through deportation." And so, um, the statements go on and on; they get much worse. But he has said a lot of vile things about Central Asians and people in, in the Caucasus, but. Uh, now he's currently serving a two and a half year prison sentence. And according to the Moscow Times, he's in a prison colony in the Vladimir region, which is three hours outside of Moscow, where he'll spend the next two and a half years. And a number of inmates have uh, told the Moscow Times that it's one of the most repressive places that you could possibly be if you are a prisoner. I just want to open up the conversation by saying, yeah, you know, we all know the reason why he's in prison is a bunch of BS, but this Amnesty International news has actually compounded the problem. They gave him a designation, then they took it away because of his racist statements. And so I definitely appreciate them saying that, yes, we cannot stand behind somebody who said these racist things, but I feel like it created a wider range of problems uh, when they took away the designation. But I want to hear what you all have to say. I want to start off with Kimberly about what her thoughts are about um, Navalny's racist statements and how Amnesty International handled it. Um, I agree with you. I think that Amnesty, they just stepped on their own feet when they removed the prisoner of conscience label. And people have been comparing it to when they did the same thing to Mandela. Which is a different situation, but whatever. We can talk about it. Very different story. situation, but I think Amnesty, they, they you know, shot themselves in the foot. But then they had that weird interview with like pranksters from RT or something. And it's, it, I didn't even understand what was going on. But I think that the issue is when, we, when we've seen this on you know, social media and how people have been talking about it, they act like you can't treat Navalny, like Navalny's racist comments and this ordeal as a prisoner of conscience with nuance, like he can't be both. And it's true that he, you know, the Russian government has tried to take this man's life multiple times and his current prison sentence is a direct result of the repression of the Putin regime. That does not negate anything he has said about Central Asians or people from the Caucasus. And what really bothers me is this narrative that, well, people in Russia don't care about what he said about Central Asians. They aren't concerned about that. They're concerned about Putin. I, what, what that says to me is, no, people who will benefit under Navalny if he becomes president, who you know share these nationalist values, they won't be harmed by what he says, so they don't care. But to say that all Russians don't care, including people from Central Asia and the Caucasus and Alpha Russians who reside in Russia, saying that they don't care, it's just putting up a blanket statement that ignores the ethnic diversity of the country. And I agreed with you in your, in your Washington Post article, since Navalny wants to be the leader of Russia, and he's like currently the face of the Russian opposition, whether that opposition is organized or not, it is important that he hasn't apologized about this specific 
instance because people will bring up, oh, it's 10 years ago, it was seven years ago. He had walked back his comments about Georgia. He's walked about walked back some of his statements about the LGBTQ community in Russia, but I have not seen him walk back his statements on Central Asians and, and Caucasians. And those statements do active harm to people of those ethnicities in Russia. And to not address that, or better yet, to not envelop these people within his movement against Putin is it's just politically short-sighted to me, and I don't think we need to equivocate on that issue. Absolutely. So, Rana, what are your thoughts? I think we have to uh, contextualize a little bit. You know, um, if you look at the uh, um, statistics and uh, how much of migrants are in the country, what are the attitudes of uh, uh, young people or general people, uh, then you can observe this kind of uh, situation where you have... um, uh, I think official numbers are like 10 or 12 million of migrants and uh, illegal migrants like five, six millions. Um, so you can already imagine this kind of um, attitudes of people uh, in Russia, where, for example, uh, to statistics in 2005, that um, half of the uh, population uh, expressed this kind of attitude towards uh, this kind of uh, migration, which are not controlled properly. Um, so you can contextualizing the situation. I mean, the, the that politicians uh, give uh, racist statements and all these channels uh, showing uh, migrants in bad lights and uh, calling names and everything. Uh, I mean, this is all present. This is all there, and uh, that's not nothing new. And uh, I think uh, what he said, if he, uh, of course. Of course, of course, it makes a difference when he, for example, goes to a Russian march and then screams uh, all these paroles together with those uh, 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 tattooed uh, neo-Nazis who are g- really loud. Then, of course, you are you are shedding some kind of different light than you are just saying something against uh, uh, Caucasians or, or Central Asian migrants, which will actually gain uh, not only the the voters from a, a new neo-Nazi group, but also uh, normal uh, people, these 50% of people who expressed uh, negative attitude uh, uh, um, against these migrants, which are not properly controlled in the eyes of um, uh, Russians. So uh, I think we have to really uh, contextualize things. And also the opposition, how much opposition is there? And, and uh, I think everybody is uh, focused around Navalny because I think uh, he's one of the, so far, I think uh, most popular uh, leaders within this uh, opposition side because nobody dares to be opposition in this kind of authoritarian uh, uh, country. Then you say, okay, at least we have some kind of opposition. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's go with him. So who cares what he says about migrants? Yeah. or something. So I think uh, we have to really relativize and contextualize uh, uh, things a little bit. I understand. Irina? I appreciate uh, the difficult situation. The Amnesty International uh, has found themselves because uh, we can't deny, you know, that what uh, have been said by Navalny uh, during his May campaign in 2013 and before and after, but even even to look at his uh, um, political platform for president. So he wants he wanted to introduce the visa regime for those who from Central Asian countries. 
but not for those who are from Ukraine and Belarus. So it's obvious ethnic hierarchy here. Uh, and um, I worry that currently um, the debates, how they're framed in uh, Russian mass media and among intellectuals, they're very polarized. So it means that almost like if you criticize uh, Navalny nationalist views, it's like you're almost <laughs> on a side of a current political framework, which is not true, right? And then I think I think this worries me because uh, Navalny and his team, they, they, they really need to, to, to think and to, to reconsider this political platform. So it's a sign and it's a chance for them, I think, to be more inclusive, to provide a voice for marginalized ethnic communities of migrants as well. So I don't, but I'm not sure if they will really consider it as a chance because um, as many experts were saying previously is Marlene Laruel and others, you know, there is an element of uh, populism and, uh, you know, we can't deny nationalism in Navalny platform. So I don't think that it will be much reconsidered. Right. You, you, I, I agree with you, Irina. And so the reason why I wrote my Washington Post article the way that I did, basically saying that um, that Amnesty International needs to reinstate its status is because the issue is bigger than Navalny now. So... That, that's the problem. So you created a larger problem that was bigger than the issue that you wanted to address. And so when you decide to be an international organization that takes a position on something, your political calculations have to be right the first time because if you make a mistake, you have the potential to create new problems. So what I think that they ought to do with Navalny is that they need to leverage the fact that in order to galvanize international support around him, he and his team are going to have to reconsider uh, their platform because ultimately you will hear a lot of people in Russia or commentators say, we don't need the West help. We don't need the West here. Or we don't need the West that. And it's really curious because a lot of these same people who are um, these Russian commentators and intellectuals who are talking on Western TV had to literally flee to the West. <laughs> <laughs> okay okay so so that's the irony of this stuff they had to flee to the west but then now you want to say well you know russia doesn't need your expertise and your knowledge about race in russia because it's a different thing so you know a western you you know western democracy seems to be suiting you pretty well okay you, you know so so and, and and i hate to go there but that's just the truth and so i think that Amnesty International uh, needs to leverage this conversation in that way they'll be able to use their power in order to, you know, sh you know, move, shift conversations amongst these Western Russian intellectuals who take advantage of the freedoms that they say are not present in Russia, right? It's not present there. And so in order to say, hey, the, you know, in order to take advantage of this or to be a part of this conversation, um, in regards to, you know, human rights. I just find it really curious that for people who are supporting Navalny around human rights, that they have this curious attitude about race. So you mean to tell me race is not a human rights issue there? It's just really odd. And also, I'll say, and I'm pretty sure Kimberly could probably relate to this, particularly, you know, it's, it's really curious, like, um, 
I find that when I'm talking to Russians or particularly Ukrainians or Belarusians, I'm, and it, it's different in Central Asia, which is, a whole, I guess, another conversation. It's different in Central Asia for me um, because a lot of people, when they saw me, they saw my beard and they thought I was Muslim. So there's a different type of conversation there. It's vastly different from being in a Slavic country. But I'm usually the first black person that a Slav in these parts of the world has ever met. And if you talk to them, many of them don't know anybody who's a really close friend that's from Central Asia or uh, from the Caucasus. You know, none, uh, very, it's like very rarely do they have that. And so they very much function like white people here in America, which is why it, it's so easy for them to integrate here. Irina, <laughs> you you do a lot of work on migration of, you know, um, you know, forced migration of Ukrainians because of the war. So I want to hear your insight on this particularly. But I'll tell you that in Ukraine, for example, like Ukraine, a lot of my friends say, well, aren't Russians and Ukrainians the same type of people? I'm like, God, no. <laughs> like that, you know, because the way that we see it, the way that we see it in America, we're like they're all white people. So race is a very specific thing. If you look a particular way, you are something. Whereas we all know that once you're in Europe, period, right? But particularly if you are east of of um of Austria or 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 um or Germany, right? Once you get into Poland and all those other places, the way that a Slav is perceived in Western Europe. You know, they run into all types of conversations about racism being treated as a lesser damn person. And so I just find it peculiar that these folks who have this story of being othered for daring to migrate into Western Europe would not have sympathy for people who are, you know, Central Asians and, you know, from the Caucasus. I just find that peculiar. And then there's also this 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 very you know, this little brother attitude that uh, that that's in the Russian discourse about Ukraine, you know, and again, I break this down to my friends here in America who, who say they're the same people. No, they aren't. So race to me is as a black person going there and the things that they say to me, it's just it's perfectly evident that they have their own racial dynamic. They may not call it the same thing, but it's there. So, Arena, what, what are your thoughts about that? I think that the issue with the such, uh, how to say, the, 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 the such understanding of race uh, in Russia and also in Ukraine, it goes from such a socialistic um, understanding and almost primordialistic understanding of race, which is like um, linked with the biological and physiological features of people, which uh, even my generation studied in textbooks and just, uh, you know, it's absolutely horrible. And I think that yeah, yeah. Kimberly probably will talk about it more. <laughs> yes, but I think that it, it's uh, it, it's really impacted on understanding uh, like people's perceptions and imaginaries about race uh, among ordinary people. And then uh, usually when we hear ra racism, you know, uh, the <laughs> mass media in Russia, these issue of racism in, in the US and doesn't even make connections with what's going on in Russia, right? Because they, they might call mm -hmm. it xenophobia, but also not very often they might call it nationalism. But there is not no understanding of such a discursive and cultural uh, racism, uh, unfortunately. But uh, talking about uh, Ukrainians in Russia, it's a it's a very interesting question because uh, as I mentioned that um, we can observe such an ethnic hierarchy in in relation 
of people's attitudes towards migrants from Central Asia and, and um, towards migrants uh, from Ukraine and from Belarusia. So we can see it in a, uh, how to say, in a market to rent a flat. So we can see announcements that, you know, we, we, we always, we can on, only have uh, people uh, from Slavic group, right? So Ukrainian migrants are all right, but others not. And then um, talking about uh, Russia's policy towards Ukrainian refugees, uh, very often political leaders, they use the word brotherly people to help brotherly people. And, uh, but they mean actually, they meant not Ukrainians, right? So they always were saying people from Ukraine or people from Donbass. And so they didn't want to see Ukrainians actually behind the, these people. So they didn't want them to speak Ukrainian, I don't think. And then uh, when I studied what's going on within Ukrainian diaspora as well, so I think that uh, many of the activities to um, teach Ukrainian or to organize different cultural ways, events, you know, from 2014, they started to go down a bit. So people were not accepted again as Ukrainians. So people were accepted within such a framework of a conflict and Russia blamed um, Ukrainian nationalists. So I put it into brackets, of course. So, and uh, didn't want to see the real issues or, and the real um, factors of, of this conflict. I want to ask you something, Arena. You, you talk about the Russian nationalist part. During the war, that broke out that Russia that that the Kremlin started. Why does the 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 label like either Russian I'm not Ukrainian nationalist or Ukrainian Nazi? Uh, why is that so effective? Because I even there are a lot of Americans uh, who are who go online not Russians Americans who have never been to Ukraine. Okay, like never been to Ukraine or Russia for that matter and don't speak Russian who <laughs> or any language from that region who who really tout this Ukrainian nationalist Ukrainian Nazi narrative and it was relatively effective to a certain degree why why do people use that language uh, I, I think that uh, there are the, the different reasons for that but uh, if to look at uh, politics of memory in Russia and uh, um, the celebrations of Victory Day and militarization of the celebrations of Military Day as well and the patriotic education at, at school this uh, category of Nazism I think that it's it worked right in the informational sphere so it, it actually was um, how to say uh, such a instrument over this uh, informational war, if I might say. Yeah, I got you. No, I want. No, I, I appreciate. It. I think that's important context. Uh, but I just want to let you know, and our readers know, our listeners know that um, they they use a lot of Americans use it over here, and we have this term called tanky. You know, they're, they're basically people who have this nostalgic attitude towards the USSR, and it's I find it kind of gross. But when you really think about it, it's actually. Um, well, I'm talking, yeah, I'm talking about the Stalin, you know, like pretty much the Stalinist area. It, it, it was, but, but the thing is, is that it's ironic because at the end of the day, the USSR, like America, for example, truth be told, they're all colonial powers, right? Let's just be real. I mean, they're, they're both colonial powers, but 
we have this tanky culture in a way that kind of glorifies, you know, everything from the old um, regime. And it's weird. But but Rano, uh, I'm curious, you devote much of your time to Central Asia, uh, particularly Uzbekistan, where I, I just visited a month ago. And what what are the, the dynamics of race around how folks in Russia view people from Central Asia, particularly Uzbekistan? Yeah, I think I, I just joined the Irina's comment. It's really uh, amazing in this uh, in this context where you have the Soviet past with uh, with his textbooks on uh, where we studied. I myself also studied uh, different races. Is there? And there is also this again uh, the war history is also there. Um, so. I think uh, that there are, of course, these differences in the Ukrainian context and Central Asian context. But if you look at the uh, uh, the, the names that are used both uh, in Central Asia even, and also in Russia towards uh, non-Slavic uh, 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 nationalities, I think there is this kind of, of course, hierarchies uh, among ethnicities. Um, and where the Slavs are kind of uh, higher and then you have this all others, uh, non-Slavic uh, nationalities, which are uh, called names like, uh, referring to the color, like Chornazopi uh, or Churki. For those who are listening, that means black ass. Black ass or Churki is like... Uh, uh, I think this you have to. Uh, there is a uh, 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 gypsy categories and present in this discourse, and there is this black category present. So this I've been called that several times. <laughs> <laughs> but but go ahead. It's not funny. But go even ahead. in Uzbekistan, you would uh, hear uh, uh, the word Negro towards uh, uh, migrants who are coming to from the rural areas who have a little bit uh, darker. You can even uh, relativize the, the skin's uh, 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 color, like dark, darker, the darkest. So, I mean, this is very, I mean, um, it depends on the context. As I said, in the Slavic context in Russia, you have this kind of Slavic and non-Slavic people, hierarchies and uh, uh, so, and this pooling together uh, different nationalities and, Got you. So, you know, uh, I another question, Rano, I want to ask you is, I don't know if you've devoted much attention to our migration issues in America where <clears throat> the, we have a lot of uh, folks who enter America and they are undocumented, right? Um, but the thing about it is that, especially it's prevalent, in, you know, in the Southern states, particularly Texas, for example, is a lot of places where, you know, where Kimberly is, but what a lot of people don't want to get into is that a lot of corporations take this low paid, late, you know, take this undocumented labor, right? And they, and they um, really depend on it and it almost functions under the table, right? You know, um, where you have a lot of corporations, uh, a lot of mid-sized businesses that have petitioned Congress, hey, slow up on that whole, you know, the people who are really far right about, you know, we got to put up the border wall and these folks who have these businesses are like, wait, 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 wait a minute. You know, we need this labor because we literally can't find people in the states to do this work. There are many complications about that, right? But the, but the bottom line is that 
capitalism, the earth, the need to make more money, more money, more money is feeding this undocumented, um, you know, immigration here. And so we need their labor, but we don't want, but in America, we don't want them here. And, you know, there are plenty of people who are undocumented who are from Ireland, for example, right? That's been reported, but the same animus and anger isn't targeted towards them. And so I, you know, so that has really caused us in America to have another conversation about race that a lot of people don't want. But do you feel like, um, in your experience of researching Central Asian migrants, um, you know, how do they deal with this day-to-day -day stuff? Because here we have many organizations that if they're, you know, people's rights are violated, they can, they have the law to help protect them. Even if they're undocumented, we have civil rights groups that will march for them. We have a black lives matter movement here in America that is very universal, even though it focuses on black people. What type of resources and community do Central Asians have to fight back against the racism they experience? Yeah, this is um, it's a very nice aspect. Uh, just uh, last month, I was looking at I was writing a paper on day laborers, and I was comparing the day laborers. Uh, uh, they are called Mardikas in Central Asia, for example. You have them also in the United States. And when I was comparing the, the day laborers uh, within the, this informal labor in, in, in the United States and in Russia and Central Asia, you can, as you, as you described yourself, uh, it's, it's much better, even if it's informal labor, uh, it's much more, it's more protected than in, in Russia or in Central Asia. So this institutional racism is really a problem. Uh, it's like, you know, also going back to Navalny, I mean, uh, the politicians are, they want these voters and the voters don't want these migrants because there are too many. They appear in the streets, they go to mosques. Every, if you look at the Ramadan, uh, the Central Asian, uh, the, the Central streets, which are uh, just blocked, for, for millions of uh, Muslims wanting to pray, and you can understand this kind of attitude. So they want these waters, the waters don't want the migrants, the economy wants this labor. So it's kind of, if you, if you analyze this whole situation and, and the daily survivals and all these police raids and all these policemen who is uh, living on these uh, poor migrants who are just uh, uh, pray to them every day on the streets and their accommodations and the whole system uh, about um, within the migration regime. We, which we were just uh, also publishing about this. This whole migration regime is this institutional racism is there, which really kind of keeps this system as it is. Uh, like this whole deportations regimes is also part of this whole uh, system. So. They keep them, they keep abusing them, exploiting them, uh, kind of as if they would like to say, okay, uh, we, we, we keep this labor here in the country, but we don't treat them nicely. So we exploit them, uh, we, we let the economy running, and, uh, and the waters are then somehow, uh, don't say when Navalny uh, uh, screams something against migrants, they say they don't care. Or, or, or is this 
seems like this, you know, if you analyze this whole dynamics and, um, and Central Asians, uh, of course, then, uh, and also all these undocumented migrants try to survive somehow in the, in the shadow, uh, being exploited, being uh, abused, being killed, but just keeping silent and working in shifts and um, uh, 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 forming their own uh, safety nets and, and, and mosque communities. Um, so it's like, it's, 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 it's institutional racism is there. I mean, institutional racism in Russia is, I mean, that's not the only place. I mean, you can also uh, find institutional racism or observe institutional racism in, uh, or silent racism in, in Germany. I mean, I, I live in Germany since um, 2005 and I have seen enough of institutional racism in Germany. Even towards yourself? So uh, I was living uh, uh, the last in Halle-Saale in the, the, the last 12 years. Um, it was, I mean, this institutional racism and silent racism is so much deeply rooted, you cannot just help. I mean, it's everywhere. It's in the, you just leave your uh, house door and it's out there in the tram, it's out there in the, at the doctor. It's out there in the school. It's out there in the nursery. It's everywhere. It's there in the bank. It's there. If God forbid, I mean, these blacks in Germany, they're really poor. And then if you look at how courts treat them, they, they are shot, for example. Uh, there was a, you know, my husband works with Somalis, and the, the Somali was shot, and they just uh, ignored. I mean, yes, <laughs> it's... He, was, he was just sent home and nothing they didn't even open the case i mean yeah sorry uh, <laughs> yeah no i got you no no trust me i, I get it it's, a, it's definitely a global issue now you know um i want to talk with you kimberly because you are a black woman who has traveled around this area and i'm a black man so in first we're, we're going to have experiences that are different based on gender alone and um we're also gonna have similar issues because we're black so I'll tell you an interesting dynamic with Caucasian people like the George, you know, and for those who are listening, I'm not talking about white people in America, like people from the Caucasus and, you know, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Dagestan, those folks. Right. So, you know, and Dagestan being, you know, a region within, you know, Southern Russia, but, but basically I experienced racism in Georgia too, but it was, it was a lot more. Yes, they're 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 from the Caucasus, and in Russia they're on a they're on a lower rung. But because I'm black, I'm on I'm lower than them because they can kind of pass for white some eventually somehow, you know, <laughs> and and so I experienced people calling me the N word all those when I was a, P, a Peace Corps volunteer in Georgia, and then uh, I went. To language to Georgian language school in Tbilisi in 2008 when the Kremlin invaded uh, Georgia as well. So I lived in that country in total, you know, for more than three years. So I have a whole lot of stories in that regard. But I'll tell you something that's also interesting is they also say, "How you doing, brother?" To me, because they feel like we have some solidarity because in Russia or to a lesser degree in Ukraine 
we're treated, you know, similarly or face discrimination. I remember in 2008, and this is right when the war started. I was in Batumi finishing up my 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 classwork, and uh, I was on a boardwalk in Batumi, and this group of guys walked behind me, and they were trying to get my attention. I turned around, they startled me. I was like, oh, you know, and they were like, calm down, calm down. And they, once we, you know, settled and we started talking, they told me that they had just uh, arrived from Rus from Moscow a week earlier. And they said that they went up there to work, right? Going back to this whole typical story about migration. They went up there to work these manual jobs. And they said that we couldn't stay any longer than a week because we were constantly fighting skinheads. You know, and so there, you know, and I'll never forget how this one guy ended the conversation with me. He said, look, in Russia, we are black like you. That's exactly what he said to me. You know, um, and that that always sticks with me, you know. Um, but Kimberly, just generally, I mean, you do a lot of work on blackness and rush, but I'm curious about you. Like, what are some standout moments in your experience in this space, whether in Russia, Ukraine, or wherever? Um, I I think it's funny that you you know he ended the conversation with more black like you because I'm working on a piece now <laughs> that looks at like after like the particularly the uh, film group who went to the black film group who went to Central Asia in 3233. Explain what that is. Where are you talking about the um yeah, I know I know exactly but just explain for the listeners. So there's a, a there was a going to be a Soviet movie called Black and White that was about the racism in America and the film ends up being canceled but the group Langston Hughes was a big part of it. He was a lead writer. Yeah, so you have like Langston Hughes and you have um, Louise Thompson Patterson and Dorothy West. So some of these bright lights of the Harlem Renaissance who before their stardom were part of this group to go and act in this movie. And a few of them went to Central Asia before they were turned back to the United States. And so I'm looking at like how Louise Thompson Patterson and Homer Smith, who became essentially the black scribe of, of the Soviet Union, he became a you know, really celebrated journalist when he was there. They kind of have this sense of camaraderie with people from Central Asia, especially Uzbeks. And so I'm kind of looking at how they see Uzbek people and how they racialize them as black and how Uzbek people that they encounter racialize them as well. And they say we're the same, like because of our circumstances, because of our shared histories of oppression. So that's kind of what I'm looking at now. But in my personal experience, um, I've been so I've been to Bulgaria, I've been to Serbia, I've been to Ukraine, I'm going to Russia next year for research. And I always surprise people when I say like the only place I've been able to travel to and I haven't really experienced racism was Serbia, of all the places. What's really peculiar, but I, just a, a brief interjection for people who don't know, like Serbia back in 19, like in the early 1990s, they literally had a race war. I mean, serious. I mean, they probably wouldn't characterize it as that, but it was some serious ethnic cleansing that was going on during that period and so it was part of the former yugoslavia you know and so is serbia you know it was croatia um bosnia you know so 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 you know and it, it dealt with this uh, this long complicated history you know revolving around kosovo and slavodin milosevic you know it was ratcheting up this racial sentiment you know like this this sentiment um you know for for years and it came to a head and so he eventually was uh, arrested and sent to the Hague for war crimes, and he died during the trial. Basically, from what I I don't know if he was I don't remember if he was convicted. I think he or not, died Kimberly, during I think he the died trial, during the and trial. then 
It's like they also captured another guy, Rajsik, um, years ago. Like he was posing as a yoga teacher <laughs> in the UK. I remember that. Yeah, they found. But the thing is, but in, listen, this is us. This is two Eastern European heads going back. So let's let's stick to. Yeah, yeah we're about to get really out, outside the weeds. But go ahead. So and so I like when I was in Ukraine. Um, like in my experience it was different because I'm a woman. And when I was in Ukraine, I had like long, you know, weave put in my hair, so my hair looked great and so i was staring at you know i had people follow me i was confused like people thought i was a prostitute although like i dressed like a school marm i was doing archival research um yeah they asked me in the like this group of men followed me and asked me in the street like are you working and it took me a while to realize that they were saying that i just turned around and started yelling at them in russian like what kind of prostitute dresses like this so like it, it was really bizarre um and i, I ran into skinheads now where were you now my next Kiev. question is when you were but but Kiev, where in Kiev? I was on Khrushchev. Like I was in the middle of. <laughs> okay, so just let everybody know. So Khrushchev is the main street that's in downtown Kiev, and it's um basically it's near. It's like like it intersects into the Maidan, which remember. So for folks like the whole you know the Maidan protest that took place the second round, um that's where everybody organized, and that is where all the tourists go. And that's also where all you see a lot of the Western men walking with the, you know, with the women who they meet in online dating. So you see a lot of that. And they you'll see these people with these little pamphlets that say massage on it. But and we all know what massage means. And so anybody who they and it's really messed up that somebody would, you know, say, you know, hey you know, you're a black woman, you're a prostitute. I mean, it happens so often with friends that I know you're, you know, definitely you're not the only one, but I just wanted to get people a, a somewhat of a visual in the context about where you were walking. It doesn't matter where you are, but especially on Khrushchev. Yeah. It, and it was just so <laughs> bizarre. Like I'm from like rural Texas. I mean, I lived in Philadelphia for college. I was just like, are you kidding me? Um, but it, and I think what's interesting is like I didn't see many. I didn't. I don't think I saw any people from Central Asia when I was in Kiev. I saw a lot of people from Turkey. I saw, I saw a lot of Turkish immigrants, and they weren't treated well. And when I was in Bulgaria, I was constantly stared at. I got called all kinds of racial slurs. I was at an orphanage working with, you know, Roma children, and they started calling me the N word. And I was just like, so mm. these are like kindergartners, so like people who are, you know, little kids who are four or five years old. And I, I stepped back and I realized because you are brown in Bulgaria, you are treated and you're demonized. So when you see someone who's darker than you, what do you, you know, what do you think as a child? I'm, you're darker than me, so you must be worse than me. Right. So, it, it, and that's really what I've been interested in. It's like how some of these racial discourses you see in America, they get transposed into Eastern Europe and, you know, the former Soviet Union. So I think that when people try, and I've heard someone make this argument earlier, that like institutional racism and, you know, these don't exist in Russia and Eastern Europe, like that's a false, that's false, period. You don't need the background of slavery to understand Russia as a former colonial power. Right, so I think that people miss. They that. have colonialism. That's yeah, enough. Like, I you mean... know, I think people miss <laughs> that. You don't have to have a history of African slavery to have institutional racism in your country. Like that's annexation. <laughs> okay, I mean, let's just. I mean, there's another conversation. I mean, literally, literal annexation. Yeah. Like, let's just start there alone. You know, and I wanted. You know, so like when I was in Uzbekistan, one of the best things, ways to learn about. What you know about um, 
about colonialization is go to their museums. So they're basically like, like you go there and you go to the Fergana, you know, Fergana Valley, for example. I went to a number of places and it all like, for those who don't know, it's a Muslim, uh, predominantly Muslim country. And you'll see it a lot of their mosques, for example, there's either Farsi or Arabic written on them. And um, a lot of the folks to tell you before um, the Russians came, we were all speaking Arabic. Like that was like outside of our own language, we were speaking Arabic. And then once they came, they started suppressing Arabic and replacing it with Russian. Like that's the common theme that you hear everywhere you go in Uzbekistan. And this started with the czars, right? Forget about the Soviets, you know? So it, it predates the Soviet period. I mean, the czars period lasted hundreds of years. You know what I'm saying? So they have this super long trajectory of subjugating people who are considered ethnic minorities in this part of the world. But Arena, I want to get to you about the work that you do. I think it's really important because you cross, you know, you deal with not you you deal with uh, people from kind of Africa as well. But I'm just curious, like you know, you deal with migration issues in Rwanda, for example, or displacement, like you know. What similarities do you find in your studies of uh, people in Rwanda, for example, who, you know, faced um, this forced immigration when you compare them to people in Ukraine? Because they both they were both connected to war. Yes. Thanks uh, for, for the question. I think that the similarities are in um, uh, mental health uh, impact on displacement and on war and people. So we, we had a we did a big study in Ukraine and uh, did a survey of thousand uh, internally displaced people and thousand people from the general population uh, and compared the level of anxiety and depression among them and the difference uh, was massive. And uh, unfortunately, all uh, programs which could support uh, people to overcome these mental health issues, they uh, have quite a short um, period of time because it depends on grants. But for example, if to talk about Ukrainian refugees in Russia and lots of uh, people moved there, as you know, so um, I feel that there were even less programs which could assist people uh, in mental health because again, Russia, how to say, yes, Russia helped Ukrainian uh, migrants uh, take citizenship and received status, right? But then it's almost says that, but now you just do, <laughs> just, uh, you know, just adapt yourself. And uh, mental health issues have, have not uh, been addressed. What I, what I want to do, and the reason why I'm having this show and why I'm going to have more of them is that I think the main problem here in the West, especially, and, and you all are in the West being in Germany and being in England, is that I think that this field, one, in the Russia, East European, Eurasian, Central Asian studies, too many people who occupy leadership roles or prominent roles are white men. They're either white men or they are men from, you know, they're a diaspora men who never have to deal with the type of people who we, who are on this podcast, devote our work to. Okay. So you, Arena, you, Rano, you, um, Kimberly, and myself, we are intentional about the work that we do. 
And it takes a level of sensitivity and care to really have these uncomfortable dialogues about race and ethnicity. And it requires us to think about ourselves, right? What do we get wrong? You know, me as a black person, I'm a black man, but I'm a man. You know, there's a gender dynamic I have to be mindful of. I also have to be mindful of the fact that <clears throat> I could be blind about things that happen to Jewish people. I could be blind. I could have blind sides about what happens to Asians. There across the country in America, there are people, there are Asians who are being attacked and, you know, racist attacks. So I think in this field, in America, we call critical race theory. And I honestly believe that if you don't understand race, you will never understand Russia. I really believe that in my heart. And as somebody who goes to Ukraine regularly, who goes to Western Ukraine regularly, that definitely is a racial conversation because when I'm there and when people talk to me, they speak about it in that context. They may not say race, but the language that is used with me is in Rus like Russia, and I'm not talking generally about all Russians. I'm talking about the power dynamic between the two states. That's what I mean. So I'm not talking about individual Russians. What I mean is that Ukrainians often tell me that we're always treated like we're less than. Or people will say that we're in, in Rapstva. You know what I'm saying? Like literal, like, slavery um or we're treated or they'll say that ukraine is a colony of moscow so those are the sentiments that i regularly hear from people and when i was in ukraine 12 years ago when i was still trying to figure out ethnicity and all that in in, in this part of the world i didn't understand it but the more I actually lived there, the more I, I could appreciate it. And I feel like you almost have to live in these in these places to really appreciate the data because there's there's you get context by living in a place and just hearing conversations that you don't get from reading in general. And it takes years of context to build up the frameworks to have the conversations that we're having. Uh, but that's my that's my ending thought that if you don't understand race. You don't understand Russia and you will never be able to address these issues with Navalny, these issues around nationalism, these issues around why, you know, in the grand scheme of things, most Russians are currently being screwed by the, uh, they're being screwed by the current um, regime. Most of them are, you know, and so, there's this larger conversation about grievances that come up, you know, so it's a long story, but I want to end the, uh, our conversation by asking you all, what are your hopes in the work that you do that will better help us all have conversations about race in Russia that are productive? So, Rano, I want to start with you. Yeah, I think uh, my, my stance on, uh, I mean, there is an emic definition and ethic definition. I mean, how people themselves define these terms and what kind of discourses are there and what politicians and how politicians see these kind of uh, racial discourses. I mean, these are very, very different as we already discussed uh, 
uh, these hierarchies between nationalities. I think yes, I think we we should we should start with critical discussion of the term race, and then relating it to the history of the place because. Obviously, in these places, uh, we are talking about post-Soviet space. In this post-Soviet space, they have a very, very particular kind of relations to the race, and their very particular uh, history about race, very particular uh, basis for understanding the race at very different levels. And they have a very particular set of uh, 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 derogatory names that they use, which go in all kinds of directions. So you talked about Zrapsva, uh, slavery, and we shouldn't talk, uh, we shouldn't forget about human trafficking, which is uh, the numbers are very increasing. I mean, there are whole factories uh, in Caucasus uh, where uh, migrants are exploited, so exploited, uh, and these are in masses. So these um, discourses around rapswa and slavery is, I mean, in real there uh, without talking about racism. Of course, this is also institutional racism, allowing all these um, uh, human trafficking structures, uh, infrastructures, uh, just uh, setting up in the Caucasus where nobody sees them. But I think starting with the understanding the term race is critically understanding the term race is good. But then contextualizing it, where these, uh, where these, where where the term takes, and 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 how it's related in this kind of context, I think will be helpful, uh, because I think there are very very different uh, issues on very different levels, on political level, on survival level, on migration level, um, are differently differently uh, defined and uh, exploited and uh, discussed and practiced. Oh, I think um, that would be my kind of uh, final note on that. Irina. Thank you. I agree with what uh, Rano said, but I think that I will be more pessimistic, so I don't know when it might happen. Kimberly, your, your final words. Um, so I hope that, because especially thinking about like how the public responds to like some of our criticisms of, of race in Russia, I hope that people understand discussing race and talking about you know, racial issues in Russia or in Ukraine or in the region does not mean that you're discounting or undermining like the civilizational status of the region, right? It's saying that we expect better from you because we know you're capable of doing better. Um, and I, I think that's the big thing I want from my work, but also to show that people of color have played and will continue to play an important role in Russia and in Ukraine. And it's time to recognize that. And when we recognize that, once you recognize the humanity of people of color, then you can start addressing these issues that we're seeing, you know, in the migrant communities, especially in, with Caucasians and civilians in Russia. Right. So thank you. So look, I my my I'm optimistic because I ultimately believe that, you know, I'm a journalist, but my but I'm also uh, informed by movement work, and I know that the people here who are paneling. We care about this issue and the world is generally held together by a small group of people and a small group of people tend to have a great level of influence on how progress begins or stalls. And the, those folks are not the only one are not the ones who uh, those folks aren't just the only folks who have money. Right. So they're, you know, activism. And the work that we do 
actually does make a difference. And it's really about us pushing the powers that be, other powers that be, because we are powerful uh, to change. And just uh, ending note in regards to my critiques of Navalny and, you know, and folks <clears throat> who are resistant to our conversations about race, or more specifically, I think a lot of folks in the West are resistant to people talking about race who don't look like them. So let me just put that out there. Uh, or more specifically, what, you know, white males who are not used to the particular type of face or voice that um, doesn't make them feel comfortable. Uh, so that is it. But, you know, for those who say race isn't an issue and the West, you know, needs to stay out of, you know, Navalny and pushing him to be on this conversation, you know, okay. In America, in the next 10 to 15 years, I can very easily see a president, Kamala Harris. I can see a president, Stacey Abrams. These people are going to care. <laughs> and, you know, I feel like our field writ large needs to, needs to catch up with the new political dynamic that's taking place in America. And I'm speaking particularly about American folks and Westerners who are, who are in this field because we have a day of reckoning in the field of Russia, East European, Central Asian studies, uh, whereby the Black Lives Matter movement needs to do a nice little cleansing of the culture of the of, of this uh, of, of this field. And, you know, it's starting now, but I think it's going to come in ways that a lot of folks aren't going to be ready for. And it'll benefit the work that we do because, you know, we'll be able to get some progress because, you know, there'll have to be some pain that comes with progress but i'm very optimistic that we were able to have this conversation and i'm grateful for you all uh give me your time and so we all do the show thank you thank you thank you, thank thank you, you very so much, much for having us here thanks a lot for listening please support the podcast by going on your favorite platforms including spotify and itunes and giving us a five-star rating and go on to patreon search for black diplomats podcast and donate what you can talk to you next week